Good evening. Good evening, everybody. My name is Rick Armstrong. I am a recovered alcoholic, gratefully and fully. Um, quick housekeeping item. I did just get a new puppy, so we're still sorting out the hierarchy with the cat. So you might hear some barking and yipping and yelling. Um, hopefully not, but probably will happen. Um, yeah, I guess a little bit about me. Um, I'm Canadian. I live in Canada. I grew up in a city called Calgary, um, central west, kind of straight north of Montana, pretty much. Um, you know, I know I've spoken at a couple American meetings and, and they all think we're little. Uh, the city I grew up in is about Calgary is about 1.7 million people. So it's by no means a little a little town. Um, the environment that I grew up in was vastly multi multicultural. Um, I was a, I was a white minority growing up, um, which all kind of plays into my story and development. My father was an alcoholic. He was a railroader. He was, he was only there part-time, um, as the nature of the railroad. When he was there, he was, uh, he was not present. And if he was, he wasn't in a good mood. And, uh, all those things kind of contributed to what I thought life looked like as a man. Um, my mother was a very staunch Catholic woman who had very strong opinions about the church, but also simultaneously was really good at turning a blind eye and uh, living in her own little reality. Um, she had some mental health issues. She ended up uh, in the psych ward off and on um, it, as a, when I was young, leaving me with my dad. Um, <clears throat> That whole multicultural piece, like it, there was a lot of gang stuff that went on where I grew up um, in, the, in specifically in the neighborhood, not the whole city. But, you know, I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks or in that neighborhood that, you know, every city's got one of those neighborhoods. Right. And that's that's where I grew up. Um, being I'm, I'm a pretty big guy, um, like six two two fifty. Um I was big from a young age. Everybody thought I was going to be some pro football player, basketball player, but I can't jump worth a shit. So that didn't work out for me. Um, but I really stood out, right? Like a really big white kid in this minority group and all of these minority groups. Um, I don't know what your, your gang life is like, if you have anywhere you're at, but it's uh, really culturally divided. Um, so being a lone white guy, I was kind of like out of place. So I, I uh, kind of, I realized after a couple incidents of violence against myself, um, I needed to fit in somewhere. So I kind of, this is where a lot of my character flaws started coming up, I think. Um, probably by like, the first time I had a gun pulled on me was like the fourth grade. Um, I've been stabbed a couple times by the time I hit junior high and, and I really started figuring out that I needed to be somebody that I wasn't in order just to be safe. Um, whether that was at home, whether that was at school, whether that was just out playing with my buddies. And so really quickly I became a character, you know, and I know the book talks about being a director and trying to be the actor and everybody, uh, you know, and, uh, 
I for sure was an actor and, and I got really, really good at it and just playing whatever role I thought I needed to, to, to get by. And, uh, unfortunately for me, I think that started at such a young age that I, I never really developed a sense of who I was to start with. Um, so, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of people in recovery and, and, uh, a lot of them talk about trying to find the person they used to be before, you know, alcohol took over or drugs and alcohol. I'm a non-denominational. I've got some outside issues. Well, I had some outside issues too, just for the record. Um, but alcohol is definitely my primary problem. Um, but talking with people that, you know, have, have achieved recovery or working towards recovery, they always want to get back to the person they were. And, and for me, that was really difficult because I, I, I didn't even know who I was to start with because I'd been a character playing roles for so long that I, uh, I didn't know who I was. And by the time I was, you know, I was drinking by probably 12, 13 on some softer drugs after that. And, and that just progressed, you know, by, by high school, we were, me and my associates were, were pretty big into moving quite a bit of, of uh, illicit, products um so i was always just this guy that i never never wanted to be never thought i was but it worked for me like all the while i was really successful in school i was a good athlete um teachers liked me girls liked me guys liked like i was popular you know i didn't uh, i didn't struggle too hard but but it was never genuine like i was never actually me i was always just being somebody for somebody else and and uh, that progressed all the way through my life. Um, it kind of came to a head in Calgary for me one night when a, a friend of mine was murdered. Um, well, he wasn't murdered, but he uh, he went into a coma in my arms and never woke up. Um, passed away. We were 17 when that happened. And uh, after that, uh, the, the police kind of came to my parents and said, you know, you got to get him out of town or he's going to end up dead or in jail. That was kind of the path I was on. My father being a railroader, having some seniority, um, he, he had the ability to just move. Right. So we ended up here in the city, medicine hat, about 65,000 people. And uh, definitely not the environment that I grew, grew up. Yeah. I moved to medicine hat and it's a town of about 65,000 people, predominantly Caucasian. None of the issues that I grew up with. But the problem is that character that I played becomes so ingrained in who I was and who I thought I needed to be. I came here with a with a chip on my shoulder and a violent tendency and some substance abuse that um, set me apart from people in this area. Um, going back, I guess, a little bit into my childhood, you know, I'm I'm not one that believes that you know addiction is all based on childhood trauma. I absolutely think that there's some elements to that, but it's, it's a combination of a whole bunch of things. I think in my experience, there's absolutely things that contribute, but I'm, I'm confident. This is, this is how I'm wired. This is who I am. It's what I am. It's in me. It's in my DNA. Um, but, you know, I can go back to my first childhood memories were like laying in bed, trying to hold my breath until I passed out. Um, because it was really comfortable. That numb feeling was really comfortable. And I, and I think I just chased that once I found 
once I found uh, alcohol and other other substances, it uh, it was easy to achieve that feeling. And so I was running from myself and everything and, and trying to just be somebody I wasn't. And, and part of that whole character flaw of being a character is it's, it's all lies, right? Everything. It's all lies. I was, I was a liar from the day I was born. I, uh, you know, playing these characters and, and, and never being genuine. Everything that came out of my mouth was a lie. There wasn't an honest bone in me. And, uh, it's kind of a hard habit to kick. Um, anyway, as I, as I graduated high school here in Medicine Hat, um, again, you know, despite myself and, and my problems, school was easy to me. Girls were easy to me. Career was easy to me. I ended up in the oil fields here in, in Alberta, which is kind of the industry. You know, we are get out of high school with a high school diploma and you're making 200 grand a year with nothing but a high school education a week after graduating. I was clearing $10,000 checks every two weeks. And for a guy with, uh, with some issues that money makes not good. I wasn't responsible with it. Mind you, I don't know how many 18 year olds would be responsible with it, but you multiply that with all of my character flaws. It was, uh, it was bad. And, uh, so lots of, lots of women, lots of drugs, lots of partying and, and, uh, and that went on for a few years, just progressively getting worse and worse. My behavior is getting worse and worse. And I, I ended up uh, meeting this young lady. And so the way the oil field works here, it's a shift. You're on for 15 days straight. You're home for six. So uh, my hitch days off, I met this girl and, you know, do what young people do and hung out for a while and went back to work for another 15 days, came home like the girl hung out again, went back on my next hitch. And, and, uh, it was pretty quick. We found out she was pregnant and I was actually in police custody that night. Um, cause I was drunk at a bar in a little town and got in a fight with a local guy and which was my norm. Um, and I was actually in police custody when my wife now wife told me that she was pregnant with our first kid. And I was 21 years old. Um, so life got really real, real quick. And that was the first time that I ever went, thought to myself, I need, to, I need to quit what I'm doing. I need to do better. Um, it was the first time I realized that my father, my father was maybe doing his best with what he had. And, uh, and I knew, and I knew I didn't want to be my dad. I didn't want to, I didn't want my kid to grow up with the same father that I, that I had. And uh, for sure, some resentment there still, but well, I shouldn't say still, but at that time. So I made the decision while I was getting released from remand there to, uh, to get clean, get sober, you know, get my life together. And, uh, and I meant it with every bone of my body. And I made it about 16 hours and I was back doing it again. And, uh, when I, when I say I meant it, like you could have hooked me up to a polygraph and I would have passed it. Every, every, every bone of my body wanted to give it up. And, uh, and despite, despite that desire, I, uh, I was back at it. 
And that's when something switched inside of me, I think. And I started building, you know, it was, I was 21 years old, a pile of money. It was fun then. It was still fun. And I was partying and it was, I was able to facilitate it. And, you know, there was a lot of emotions I was burying, but it was still, you know, I don't mean to glorify it, but, you know, it was still a party. I was a young guy having fun until that happened. And, and once I realized that I was, I was drinking and using against my will, it, it was like a light switch. All of a sudden this new emotion hit me and that was, uh, that was guilt. And I felt guilty that I was lying to people. You know, I told my wife I was going to give it up. I was going to be a better person. I was going to be a better parent. And, and I started lying about it and telling people I wasn't, wasn't using when I was and, and, and so on and so forth. And, uh, and I managed to kind of keep that lie alive for, well, quite a while, but obviously it comes out time to time. Um, but the more I drank, the more I used, the more I tried to hide it, the more that, the more that guilt ate at me. And, uh, and that's when I, the second time I realized I was screwed because the more I drank, the more guilty I felt, but the only thing that could make that guilt go away was getting numb and doing it again. And I got caught in this cycle. Like, you know, pardon my language, but I always call it the shit snowball. So it's, uh, it just keeps getting worse. Right. I, it's just that cycle. I, I get consumed by guilt and shame. I need to numb that. I, I do whatever I need to do to numb that. And, and, uh, lo and behold, I wake up the next morning with more guilt and more shame takes more booze and it just keeps growing this beast and that rotting feeling of the guilt and shame um well i think guilt more at that point um and the, and the more that progressed the more my behavior got worse the more um altercations there were the more police involvement there was um womanizing really became an issue um despite all that you know, we, my now wife, uh, we, we had another child. I've got three teenage boys now. Um, actually my oldest boys graduating tomorrow. Um, so, you know, we, we tried to build this happy life, right. And it was, um, despite all of the things that was going on and, and again, like I can't emphasize enough the, 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 the hard part for me is I would, despite myself, I was successful. Despite my behavior, I was successful. Um, I climbed the corporate ladder within the oil patch really well. I made a bunch of money. I came out of the oil patch because I wanted to be around my kids more. And I thought maybe the responsibility of being at home um, would force me to be a little better behaved than being living hotel to hotel. And, uh, and, you know, like any geographic fix, even if that geography is coming home, it didn't work. Um, but I, I started a construction company. My construction company took off very successful, made a pile of money. Um, I had, I had, I had the life, you know, I painted that picture that everybody's chasing big, beautiful house on a golf course, house, cars, truck, you know, campers, family trips to Mexico, so to me, I didn't actually recognize that I had any kind of problem because 
alcoholics or homeless people that live under a bridge or they're my dad who wasn't particularly successful who just hid in the basement and drank by himself and, and I was still very social about it um but I would like throw parties I was I was needed to be the center of attention but at the same time felt terribly alone right I'd have house parties and have 100 people and have a catered and open bar and I'd still be in the corner by myself just thinking everybody's talking about me even though i invited them all there it's uh it's it's a crazy crazy life and uh and that that lifestyle progressed and and again um you know adultery was a thing for me it was a big it was a big thing that went with went with the character i was the behavior the life that i lived and uh one day one day, one of those relationships came came to light, and uh, and my wife, I was given the opportunity. I was given about a three minute decision to make, whether a woman's husband phones her and tells her, or I do. And uh, being this chivalrous man, I was. I was like, no, no, it's something I got to do. So I, uh, I took something from my wife that day that I'll never be able to get back. And, uh, I still struggle with that. The, um, having to, having to tell the truth and having to come clean. And, uh, I knew, I knew immediately that, you know, that was just going to start. That was like a one domino fall in the house of cards coming down. It was once that came to light, this whole facade that I had built was coming down. And everybody was going to see the real me, which was a, somebody that I hated. And I, and I genuinely mean that. I would wake up every morning, damn near every morning, and look in the mirror and, and not just think it, but like audibly say how much I hate that guy. And you did it again. And uh, And as I seen what that did to my wife and my kids and my family, Again, I had a little switch and I now recognize that that switch was from guilt. Like I've done something wrong to shame, which is, you know, instead of I made the mistake, it was, I am a mistake. And I was, and I was trying to process my way through it again, not really recognizing drugs and alcohol as a problem. And I'm sorry, I keep referencing drugs, but it's part of the package with me. I absolutely am an alcoholic and I'm sorry if there's primary purpose people here, but um, it's, it's a package for me. Um, and uh, I remember trying to figure out what was wrong with me and, and realizing, you know, I got three, I got three young men that I'm trying to be an example of what it means to be a man and how terribly I had failed them at even being an example. And, how can these kids ever look up to me? I don't want them to look up to me. I don't want them to. And, and the, a city of 65,000 people, you're no more than two degrees separation away from anybody. So if, you know, if I don't know you, somebody that knows me knows you. And, and so my kids were going to have to live in the, in the shadow of who I was. They were going to have to come up in this city. So whatever they were going to do, whether it was, you know, work or girlfriends or school, they were always going to be, Oh, you're, you're that guy's kid. And, uh, and I got to a point that the only logical decision was to take my life. 
and and I I knew you know I was as delusional as I was I thought I was pretty clear-headed about it um you know I knew my family would grieve me but I I thought that 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 small grief and I and I don't mean small it would obviously be big but uh time lap right they'd grieve me for six months a year but then they'd all move on kids are resilient my wife amazing woman she would find somebody way better than me she would move on and uh but if I stuck around I was gonna who I was would torment them for the rest of their lives and so I got to a point that taking my life was uh the best thing I could do and the least selfish thing I could do um I genuinely thought it was you know what was best for everybody else sorry my kids looking at me I'm out one second sorry sorry um so somebody that was dear to me recognized the state that I was in as I started I really needed people well not even lots of people I needed a couple people to understand why I was doing what I was doing why I was about to do what I was going to do and need them to understand that it wasn't selfish it wasn't about me trying to escape what I did it was for other people and uh one gentleman in particular who ironically was my father-in-law of all the people in the world that should hate me at that moment it was my father-in-law that recognized where i was at and uh and he came and picked me up and he i don't recommend this to anybody who's ever dealt with somebody suicidal but he says you got you got one you get you know i got in this truck and he goes you got a choice to make one choice only one choice Either we're going to go kill you, we're, I'm going to help you, we're going to get it over with and we're going to do it and everybody can move on. Or you can be a man about it and try to solve this problem and, and do something. He said, the only thing you're ever going to teach your kids if you check out right now is it's okay to quit. He goes, if that's the image, if that's the message you want to leave them with, then okay, that's your choice. Let's go get it over with. And, uh, and despite my headspace, I didn't want to disappoint him. I didn't want him mad at me. So I was like, okay, well, I made a deal with myself. I got a couple more boxes I can check. And as long as I check those boxes and, uh, and I still feel the way I do. And, and, you know, then, then I've done my due diligence, right. I've, I've tried to get help. I've tried to do what I can do and, and it didn't work. And yes, I'm still, I'm, I'm now again, terribly sick in my mind and my thinking but now i'm more justified in my decision so he took me to uh what's called adac here it's like an addiction the government addiction crisis facility right i don't know what your if your state has one but um it's the government you know it's government health is what it is so um i went there and i was shuffled through like cattle right and it was take a number i sat down with an intake lady and i said and i just spilled my guts for the first time in my life i was honest right and i'm like listen i don't know if i'm a drug addict i don't know if i'm an alcoholic i don't know if i'm crazy i don't know if i'm a pervert i don't know if i'm a sex addict i don't know if i'm a porn addict or i don't know if i'm just crazy i don't know but like and blah right just just spilled my guts and this poor young lady, I don't know if she was a practicum student or new, but she was like a deer in the headlights. She didn't know what the hell to say to me. So, you know, I'm sure you all have heard uh, Canada's got public health care and it's 
free and it's awesome and, and absolutely there's elements that are one of the big problems is especially with mental health and addiction um that day they said okay and, and that date was september 16 2016 um they said okay we can get somebody we can get a counselor to see you um come back on and the date was october 28th so six weeks later they were expecting me to come back and I told him, I said, like, you know, I, I just told you I'm going to kill myself. And you're telling me to come back in six weeks. And uh, at that moment, you know, I I'd felt like a burden to everybody around me. And then when I go to the place that's supposed to help me and they tell me to come back in six weeks, it just kind of reemphasized that I was, in fact, a burden. Right. And so she gives me just a bunch of pamphlets and she goes, I don't know, check out some of these meetings, so some of these support groups in the meantime. And, uh, and so I was like, whatever, kind of wrote off the whole thing. And I'm like, boom, there we go. I'm justified now. I've, I've, I've gone to the place that was supposed to help me. They couldn't help me. I'm justified. So I went back out to the truck and I'm like, nope, they can't help me. And I slammed all these pamphlets down. He goes, what do you mean? You got all these. This is my father-in-law. He picked up the first one. It was an AA pamphlet. And he goes, there's a meeting in seven minutes. Let's go. And, and keep in mind, despite being, you know, I was, I was the guy that was in the bar at 10 o'clock until five o'clock every day, go home, have dinner, and then go back out with the boys. That's how I drank um, every day, seven days a week. So despite that, I didn't think I had a, a drinking problem still because, you know, again, despite myself, I was successful. I had all those things. So how could I have a problem? So I never identified as an alcoholic. At any rate, uh, being in construction, I know fire code, so I know there's two exits to every building. So when my father-in-law dropped me off, my my intent was to walk in the front door and walk out the back door. And, you know, he knew the meeting was about an hour, so that would give me an hour to go do what I was going to do and end my life. So when you hear people say that they walked into AA and it was the last door for them, it was it was the last door for me. I walked in that door with every intent of not even staying for the meeting like every intent of walking right through that building out the back and taking my life. And uh, I walked in the door and I was met by a gentleman. He looked at me, you know, I'm scanning the room, trying to, trying to find the exit. And, and I obviously had that. If anybody spent any time in rooms, you know, the look of that new guy who was absolutely broken. Right. And uh, I obviously had that look on my face and, and uh, a guy that's now my best friend, he approached me, his name's Damien. I know Josh knows him pretty well here. But, um, he came up and just introduced himself and, and I was looking around that room and I mean, there was, there was 70 year old farmers, there was 50 year old librarian ladies, there was all, you know, my brain immediately went to why I didn't belong there. I don't fit in. These aren't my people, you know, just everything that made me different. Like so many of us do. And, uh, Damien sat down, well, made me sit down beside him and I was trying to get away, but overtly getting away, you know, not really obvious, but, and, uh, he sits down and rolls up his sleeves and he's tattooed up and you can't see me, but I'm pretty, pretty heavily tattooed myself. So this guy's an oil field guy. And all of a sudden I can relate to somebody in the room. And uh, I don't remember much of that first meeting at all, but I stayed. And then after that meeting, he asked me to go for a coffee with him and I went. And uh, 
and sitting there with him, he told me his story and, and, and his story wasn't the same as mine, but the emotions that he had, the feelings that he felt, you know, completely different background, completely different upbringing, but those feelings were the same. And then he, and that's when he said, and, and I'm an alcoholic. And it, it was like getting punched in the face because uh, I couldn't really deny it at that point. If I related to this guy, because all the things that he felt and all of those things that he felt made him an alcoholic, I guess that means I'm an alcoholic. And it's terrifying and really relief. There was a ton of relief at the same time because he goes, you know, you got what I got. I can, you know, we're the, you've got this thing that we've got. Because the good news is there's a solution and I know it. And he goes, there's, I got a book for you and you're going to read this thing and you're going to do what it tells you and I'm going to help you. And, uh, I, uh, despite, you know, my, I think I kind of referenced earlier, my mother was a pretty staunch Catholic and I grew up to despise and really resent the church, um, the institution more than the teachings, but, um, I distanced myself from that long, long ago. And had a lot of resentment so as soon as he said you know i've got a book i'm like i'm not into that i'm not sure what's in that book but i want no part of it right and he goes no man just he goes well what do you got to lose honestly is kind of where he came at it from he goes well, you know you can always go kill yourself that option's always there tomorrow you might as well try something different and see what it does and he made me make him a deal that, you know, despite my disbelief, despite me thinking they're wrong, he goes, just try it. He goes, give me, give me, give me two weeks, give me two weeks of your time and you do everything I say. And if you still want to go off yourself, that option is still on the table, man. Nobody's ever going to take that away from me. And so we went to work and uh, I made it through 12 steps in about four, well, 16 days. And a lot of those steps, I didn't, you know, I've had to revisit them for sure um, because I, you know, to be honest with you, some of them, I just kind of, yeah, okay, I'll say that, but didn't really process it. Um, struggled a lot with the God concept. I remember going back to my second, third, fourth, tenth meeting. I remember looking up at the wall and seeing all the, all the steps and Anything that said God or prayer, I was like, no, no, no. And I'm like, well, we'll see what we can do with, you know, seven out of 12 steps. And uh, and it did work. Sorry, my kid's back again. Sorry. Um, yeah, seven out of 12. I'm like, well, whatever. Can't be any worse. But, you know, immediately I'd hope. And that was something that I hadn't had in a long time. So the, the difference that in, in the man that I was from September 16th to September 30th was night and day. I had, I was a ways from God, but I had faith. I had hope. And, uh, and that, that was everything that it was all, it was all I needed. Um, it gave me a renewed vigor and, you know, boom, I'm on that pink cloud dude we all hear about if not experienced and uh by by about six weeks i was sponsored my first guy and that was you know seeing that light turn on in him was something no 
no drink, no drug, no woman, nothing ever gave me that feeling that, that high for lack of a better word, right. Is knowing that I contributed to somebody and helped them through something that I know is so, so difficult. And, uh, I rode that out, but there was a little bit of alcoholic that I didn't let go of. And, uh, and as I was doing, as I was working through my steps, the amends that I started to make with my wife, I found a loophole as, as we tend to. And uh, that, that loophole where, you know, unless it would hurt them or others. And I'm like, man, if I come clean about all of the women and all of the things I did, you know, there's people that are married, there's other families involved. There's, so I found this like loophole that if I came clean about everything, it's going to hurt other people. It's going to hurt my wife more. It potentially is going to ruin more families. And, uh, and I rolled that loophole. I was like, no. And I, you know, I, I talked to some people in the program and maybe some people that I shouldn't have, but I was new and naive and just jumped at anybody who would take me for a coffee really. And, uh, and, you know, and I got some bad advice. Uh, they were like, hey, man, if, uh, you know, you don't have any right to blow up to tell somebody else's truth. And I was like, perfect. That's the only thing I needed to hear. So I wrote it out. So that went on about two years. Well, another year. And then I got the opportunity to move. Um, so I'd been sober for about a year. Hadn't quite been as thorough as I should have. Got the opportunity for the, for the lo- relocation. And uh, I thought it was a great opportunity for myself for my kids, you know, to move out of that shadow of who I was, fresh start, all that business. Part of that is when I wanted, when we moved, I'm like, I don't want to be Rick, the alcoholic anymore. I just want to be Rick that doesn't drink. I don't want to have to explain, justify. I don't want to go to meetings. I don't want to do any of that. I just want to carry on with my life. And so uh, I made it about eight months with no program. And, uh, and lo and behold, I'm suicidal again. And, and that's when I think the real like the real realization of it's like that second surrender. You know, I've heard people talk about the second surrender. Right. And it was like, I, I am exactly what this book says. I need exactly what this book says, as it said. And, uh, and it saved my life. And, and I, I remember, uh, <laughs> I remember the, the, mo- I was that day that I was going to take my life the second time I had, uh, I was out on a lake and it was beautiful and it was just, it was just the beginning of summer here. So ice was just starting to thin out on the lake. So I was, my plan was I was going to drive out on the ice and I knew it wouldn't support my truck and it would go through the ice and the job that I had, it could have been a work related accident. So I had thought it out, man, like my insurance would double, the kids would be taken care of, everybody would get paid. So um, I had a pretty solid plan. I was sitting there at that boat launch and I rolled down the window, still not really a believer. And, uh, and I remember like praying out loud and going, you know, God, this, this is your moment, you know, this is your moment. This is it. This is all I got. 
I need, I need something. I need a sign. I need something. And, uh, and I rolled the window down I got real quiet and I'm like looking for a bird or a deer to walk out of the bush or a cloud to float by that I could misinterpret as God, like anything, right? Desperate for something, nothing. And I was so bitter that even God had forsaken me in that moment. And I was just blinded with anger. And I threw my truck in reverse and I drove back into town. There's a big Catholic church there, the only church that I knew. And I walk up to the door and I'm going to chew out the priest. I got this plan. I got the speech in my head. And, and it, evidently, it's not like the movies. Churches aren't just unlocked. <laughs> I thought I'd be able to walk in anytime I wanted, but no, I got to like call and make an appointment. And so uh, I do. I get a hold. Of, I get a hold of the priest eventually, and he shows up, and I'm in a huff, and I'm angry, and I, he, I'm just, I'm swearing, I'm angry, and you know. I tried. I gave God the chance and he listened and he listened and he listened. And finally, about 20 minutes after me, violently swearing and just disrespecting the building I was in, he finally says to me, he goes, you alcoholics are all the same. What does that mean? He goes, you're all looking for the burning bush or that bolt of lightning he goes, the thing about God is he's real quiet. He just whispers. It's not a bolt of lightning. It's not a burning bush. It's a whisper. He goes, you tell me what you ask God for. I said, well, I was sitting there and I asked him for a sign so I didn't kill myself. And he goes, and did you? No. He goes, where are you sitting right now? In a church. He goes, let me get this straight. You're pissed off at God because he didn't answer your prayer because you wanted to not die and you were looking for a sign and now you're alive and you're sitting in a church. He says, he's not going to throw a bolt of lightning at you, man. He's going to whisper and you better figure out what you're listening. Like you need to listen for it. And, uh, and I'm still working my way through my relationship with God, but you know, I'm, I'm still a long ways away from, I don't even know where, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm willing and I'm, I'm having conversations and I've got, I've got faith for sure. And that's something that's been a blessing to me. And that in that moment, I, uh, I really doubled down and I realized that this program is what I need. And, uh, and I've made it a part of my life. Um, I live this program 24 seven. I've actually started a nonprofit kind of with respect to the, the um, tradition that we, we, we introduced at the beginning of this thing. We do keep AA out of it, but it is for sure got a 12 step foundation to it. And we're just there for people in, in that, that moment that I needed somebody to be there for me. And I was told to come back in six weeks. That's, that's why we exist in my organization. It's all 12 step guys that have been there. And, and, uh, and I've been lucky enough to get into some rooms with some really, really influential people, policymakers, government officials, uh, premiers, which is like senators, um, you know, and and have a lot of conversations with a lot of people and try to change from help people change some of the policy. And and for me, my big my big thing is getting people to understand that 
alcoholics aren't homeless people under the bridge. It's, it's you, it's me, it's my kid. It's my, the guy that cuts my meat at the butcher shop. It's, it's, they're, they're, they're all of us. Right. And, uh, and so many of us don't even know the illness that we have. So it, I think it's really important to be there. And it's a lot of these conversations I've had have come to a point that, you know, I say, and I stand by this statement and, and keep in mind, it is very much a 12 step based approach that I have to life, but I've got it simplified in two things. And, you know, this is a gift. And, and, and I will say that alcoholism is a gift that I have. It was given to me by somebody, something still working out, but, uh, it's a gift because it gave me the two things that saved my life. And that's a purpose and a community. And I spent, that's, that's the hole that I was trying to fill my whole life for 36 years until I found this. It's, it's 12 simple steps. It's a simple program. We've all heard, you know, the one-liners and enough meetings. For me, it's two things. It's, it's purpose and it's that 12 step. And it's community. That's what this program is to me. That's what saved my life. And uh, and with that, I'd just like to say thanks for the invite to Josh and to Andy. And uh, hopefully we got through that without my dog barking. So I think it's a win. So thanks a lot, everybody. Man, thank you. Thank you so much for 